Good morning, everybody. Apologies for the slight hoarseness of my voice. I got a little overexcited yesterday while watching a football match, um, but I'm sure we'll be okay. Um, so as Neil said, we're continuing the series in Romans. Um, Ron kicked us off last week by looking at the first half of Romans 1, and today we're looking at the second half of Romans 1, and boy, is this a beauty. You will see what I mean as I start reading. Hold on to your seats. <laughs> the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Wow. Um, it's not a reading you're going to hear at many weddings. <laughs> when we were deciding what reading to have, that wasn't in our, in our thoughts. It's not something you'll see in many greetings cards, you know. Congratulations on your baptism. Here's a little word to encourage you. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. It's not the sort of thing that we tend to gravitate towards if we're thinking of what, what should I read in the Bible today. How do you feel when you hear a passage like that? How do you feel when you read a passage like that? Because I guess there'll be a, a, a range of responses in the room ranging from some will feel very uncomfortable with with this sort of thing, with, you know, this sort of passage. This is the sort of passage you wish was not in the Bible because it's a bit embarrassing. Gives God a bad name, and you'd rather avoid that. And there may be a whole range of reasons why you feel uncomfortable about this thing of the wrath of God. There may be lots of reasons behind that. I guess it could go through to the other reaction, which is, yes, preach it, brother. Tell it straight, the wrath of God. Yeah, people have got to hear this stuff. Tell it straight. Tell them as it is. I guess for most people... You're just glad you don't have to preach this. 
As with anything you read in the Bible, you've got to look at it in its context. Because without any context, this just sounds like Paul, who, who writes this letter to the Romans, it just sounds like he's writing an angry rant. But when you look at the context, it makes a lot more sense. So Paul is constructing a logical argument here, as he does. He's very logical, Paul. He, he's very methodical, very reasoned, rational, and he constructs logical arguments. And um, in this letter to the Romans, he's doing the same thing. And at the beginning, in fact, from here, from chapter 1, verse 18, right up to chapter 3, verse 20, he is outlining the, the human predicament. He's outlining the whole hum humanity that mankind finds ourselves in until you get to probably a couple of the most glorious words in the whole of the Bible in Romans 3, verse 21, which says, but now. But now, a righteousness from God is being made known. But he's outlining the human predicament, the mess that we are in. And last week, Ron spoke on the first half of chapter 1, and particularly focusing on verses 16 and 17, which is all about the gospel and this unstoppable this unstoppable, undeserved gospel of which we are not ashamed. And it talks about, in verse 17, a righteousness from God being revealed. So you look at this in the context, and you see actually there are two things being revealed. God's righteousness and God's wrath. And in fact, in the original Greek, verse 18 is linked to verse 17 by the word for. Or because. So what it's saying is God's righteousness, verse 17, is being revealed... Because God's wrath is being revealed. The point is this. This that we're looking at today, this is the bad news that makes the good news so very, very good. The gospel is really only good news when you understand what you have been saved from. The hopeless, helpless, desperate situation that you were in and that you have been rescued from through no doing of your own and actually the situation you may still be in if you have not accepted the rescue that Jesus Christ offers. Tim Keller says that this section of Romans presents us with a dark picture of humanity, yet, yet, it is the backdrop on which the bright jewel of the gospel shines all the brighter. It's the bad news that makes the good news good. And if you don't understand or you don't believe in the wrath of God, it's something you'd rather ignore, well, then the gospel will not thrill you. It won't empower you. It won't move you. But it does prompt, this does prompt two key questions that I want to look at today. First one is, why is the wrath of God being revealed? And second, how is the wrath of God being revealed? And then right at the very end, I'll come to a third question, which arises from that, which is, what then can we do about it? So why is God's wrath being revealed? Well, let me just say, first of all, I think a major reason that we get so uncomfortable with passages like this, we don't, why we don't like really thinking about this sort of thing, we don't like thinking about the wrath of God, is because we, we equate God's wrath to human wrath, to human anger, kind of uncontrolled emotional outbursts, temper tantrums, fueled by rage, uncontrolled lashing out. That's not what the wrath of God is like. The wrath of God is the necessary and justified reaction of a holy God to sin. It's the necessary reaction of a holy God to sin. If you, if you if think of it in these terms, we all like justice. We all have a thing about justice. And when we see injustice in the world, there's a necessary reaction in us because we want to see justice done. And if you have children, you'll know this particularly. If, 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 something, if your child is wronged in some way, as a parent, there is a reaction in you. There is a necessary reaction. In fact, it would be odd if there wasn't. You want justice for your child. The wrath of God is a necessary reaction of a holy God, because that's who he is. It's his character. He is a holy God, and it's a necessary reaction of a holy God 
to sin, but it's not arbitrary, it's not irrational, it's not uncontrolled, but it is intense. Let's make no mistake about that, the wrath of God is intense, and it's scary. God is angry at sin that corrupts his world and, and, and hurts people he loves, but having said that, we mustn't ignore the role and the responsibility of mankind as if, as if sin is just an impersonal force which makes us, force us to do wrong, and we make no choices in this. What does it actually say? Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be made known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without Excuse. Paul talks about men, mankind, suppressing the truth. You, you can't suppress a truth if you don't know about it. You can't suppress something that you don't have or that you don't know about. So what he's saying here is that actually, because of what is revealed about God in creation, that there is a knowledge of God in every human heart. It's there. Now, I don't know if anyone saw a TV program which featured Stephen Fry and Bear Grylls spending a weekend together. Did anyone see that? Uh, quite an unlikely combination, but um, they're sitting there on this mountain top or the mountainside, and they're surrounded by the most unbelievable scenery, just breathtaking, awesome, majestic, spectacular scenery. And they're sitting there talking about matters of life and, and faith and all that sort of thing. And Stephen Fry, who is a self-confessed atheist and um, highly intelligent man, he said this. He said, I suppose there's a danger of getting very pretentious when you're in a vast landscape like this because it does make you think. All the imponderable questions come tumbling into your mind, don't they? And it's true, isn't it? Creation can do that. Stella shared a word this morning, actually along those lines. Creation can do that. It can reveal the glory of God and the universe and everything we know about our universe. And we're discovering more and more all the time. We know a fraction about our universe, but it's vast. It's the scale of the universe. It is awesome. In, in the proper use of that word, it is awesome. And the universe has a way of making us feel very, very small, and it provokes those kinds of questions in us that we spend most of our lives suppressing. Is there something more? Is there something more? When you look at this majesty, you look at this vastness, is there something more? Paul is saying very clearly, creation reveals a creator to us. Just like you can look at a painting and you know there was a painter. Well, some of God's qualities can be seen in creation. His power, his majesty, his creativity. Now, you can't know everything about God from creation. So creation doesn't tell us about God's love or God's mercy, for example. But you can reason when you look at the universe, when you look at the created world, you can reason that whoever made this must be a being of unimaginable greatness. Unimaginable greatness. And then we suppress the truth by trying to explain the universe without God. And we suppress that which is made plain through creation. So men are without excuse. We can't claim that we didn't know any better. Deep down, every human being, every human heart knows that there is a creator, but we suppress it. We suppress that truth because fundamentally, we want to be in control. And when I say we, I'm talking man, about mankind generally. We want to be in control. And to acknowledge the truth and the power of a creator God is to acknowledge our dependence on him 
and our accountability to him as part of his creation. And we don't like that. We live under an illusion that actually we're at the center. We live under the illusion that we are self-sufficient, that we get to decide what's right and wrong. We get to decide how we live our lives. We hate the idea of being dependent on somebody in any way. We want to be independent. We want to be in control. You see this from a very young age in human beings. I, I was sitting in my office the other day, just looking out the window, taking in the beauty of Desborough Road and, you know, <laughs> wondering at God's creation. And um, I saw an amusing scene. There was a, there was a, there was a mum walking along with a pushchair, and, and toddler was not in the pushchair. The toddler was walking alongside, or not walking alongside. Mum was clearly in a hurry, and she's saying, come on, toddler is standing by the shop window very still, refusing to move. And mum's going, come on, come on, we've got to get back to the car. You know, you're going to have to get in the pushchair. No, don't want to get in the pushchair. I said, well, you're going to have to walk then. Okay, and so he walked for two seconds, then he stops again and goes back to the shop window. Come on, and mum is starting to lose the plot now. If, if you're a parent, I'm sure you, you can identify with that particular scenario. But it's, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not getting in your pushchair. I'm going to do it my way. I'm exerting a bit of my independence, my control. You know, It reminds me of um, our oldest daughter, Anna, who's nine now. When she was very, very little, when she was crawling, she used, to, um, she used to start crawling off towards the TV, and she knew she wasn't supposed to go near the TV. She knew she wasn't supposed to touch it. And um, you would, as she's crawling off, she would be looking behind her to check if we're watching. And uh, you would just say, Anna. And she would stop and look at you. And then she would sort of carry on a bit, Anna. And then she'd turn around and look at you. But as she looks at you, she's got one finger <laughs> resting on the TV. This is my little rebellion here. This is my now, thankfully, with Anna, it just all it needed was a raise of the eyebrows, and she would take the finger off and, and, and move away. But it's, it's just all about, I, I'm my own person. I want to exert my independence, because we want to be in control of our own lives and of our own world. It's just how we are. And that means putting man at the center of reality and at the center of truth and relegating God to a position of utter irrelevance. Copernicus was the Polish astronomer who, who came to the conclusion that actually... Uh, the earth is not the center of the universe around which the whole universe revolves. Actually, we revolve around the sun. He was reluctant to publish his findings, probably because he knew the battle he would have to convince, to convince people that man and the earth are not the center of all existence, that we're not the center of all reality. We don't want to know that. People don't want to hear that, whether it's from an, a, an astronomer or a theologian. We want to be the center of the universe. And so verse 21 says, although they knew God, again, reiterating, they knew him, they knew the truth about God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. We don't want to give thanks to God because that means we're obligated to him. It means that we owe him, that we're dependent on him for our very lives. And that means losing control. And so mankind suppresses the truth about God. There's a theologian called R.C. Sproul who, who gives another reason for the suppression of truth. He says, there are powerful and compelling reasons for denying the existence of the God of the Bible. Why? Because the God of the Bible is the most threatening being man can face. The holiness of God is a trauma to sinful man. And we see this in action in the Gospels when Peter says to Jesus, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Which is a strange reaction to somebody who's just miraculously got you a massive haul of fish, because that's what had just happened. And he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. What, what, what's, what's Peter saying? Well, he's saying, 
please leave, you make me uncomfortable. You are beyond my imagination. I'm a sinful man. You are holy. You are other. You are transcendent. You just make me uncomfortable. I don't know what to do around you. You, It's kind of breaking me up. I can't handle you, is what he's saying. We see it with Isaiah, who's described as the most righteous man of his generation. He sees this vision of God, and he says, woe is me. He's ruined. He's utterly wrecked by the holiness of God. How do you think of God? What is your view of God? Because the God of the Bible is described as loving and merciful and full of grace, but he's also described as a consuming fire and holy. And he comes down on Mount Sinai with thunder and clouds and darkness. You know, no one can see his face and live. He's the one who, who, who insists that there's no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. That's the God of the Bible. It's, it, it, it reminds me of that classic line from the, the Narnia stories where the children are asking about the great lion, Aslan, they're saying, is he safe? And the answer is safe. No, he's not safe, but he is good. It's the God of the Bible. He's not safe, but he is very good. What is your view of God? How do you see God? Because sometimes we invent our own versions of God. So on one side, we might invent for ourselves a very liberal God, the God of love, the God of the universe, a purely benign, floaty kind of force, which basically means you can live your life however you want because he will make no demands on you. He will not challenge you in any way. On the other extreme, we can invent for ourselves a a, a very moralistic uh, God of rules, a demanding, legalistic God. If you try really hard, if you you observe these moral absolutes, if you obey and and you please God, then he'll take you to heaven. And you know, of course, that's a God who owes you because you follow his rules. He owes you. Those gods, the liberal God and the, the legalistic, moralistic God, with both of those gods, ultimately, you are still in control. You keep control. But we're talking about the God of the Bible. We're talking about the one who is perfectly loving and full of grace and full of mercy, but he's also a consuming fire and terrifying in his holiness. The only way you can relate to that God, the only way you can relate to the God of the Bible is on the basis of absolute grace. And that means you owe him everything. You owe him everything. So we suppress the truth. Mankind suppresses the truth about God because we don't really like the God of the Bible. We don't like the idea of him, and we don't like the idea that we are in anyone's debt. Now, the inevitable consequence of all of that is idolatry. It says in in verse 22, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of God, uh, the glory of the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And then in verse 25, it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. There's this exchange which happens when you suppress the truth about God. There's an exchange which happens. Uh, the glory and truth of God is exchanged for the lie, the lie of idolatry. Humans will either worship their Creator or a created thing. Nobody worships nothing, because humans always have to live for something. We are what's known as telic creatures. Telic comes from the Greek word telos, which means purpose. We are telic creatures. We have to have purpose and meaning in our lives. It's what we live for. The only question is where we look for it. And of course, being a Christian doesn't make you immune to idolatry. Is there anything that you love more than God? 
Is there something that you look to to provide that fulfillment and meaning and purpose in life outside of God, whether that's your career or money or sex or approval of other people or relationships, family, control, sport, whatever it might be. It could be something that you have now and it rules your life. It dominates your life. You give too much of your focus to this thing. Or it could be something you you don't have yet but you wish you did. I wish I could get into that relationship. I wish I could have that much money. I wish because then I would be fulfilled. Then I'll be happy. These are all created things and created systems. Are you looking to created things to give you what only God can give you? Because whatever you worship, you serve. It says it right here in verse 25. They worshiped and served created things. You become a slave to it. It rules your life. John Piper says, the solar system of our soul and our society was made to orbit around the glory of God and his all-controlling son. But the entire human race has exchanged the glory of God for weightless substitute satellites that have no gravity and can hold nothing in its proper orbit. Therefore, all the world is disordered and decaying and moving towards destruction. It's idolatry. We, when we pin our hopes not on God, not on the immovable God, but in things which are weightless, they have no gravity, they can't hold, they, they, they don't give you what they promise, they can't hold you in orbit. It's idolatry, and it's, and it's very bad news. So why is the wrath of God being revealed? Because of the godlessness and wickedness of men caused by sin, and because man has suppressed the truth and exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols. That's why the wrath of God is being revealed. It's the necessary response of God to sin. How is the wrath of God being revealed then? Well, just as you can see God's existence in beauty, the beauty of the world, so you can find his wrath and his justice in the brokenness of the world. Three times in the following verses, we find the phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over. Because of the suppression of the truth and the, the exchange of God for idols, God gave mankind over to the sinful desires of their hearts. He gave them over to shameful lusts, and he gave them over to a depraved mind. Now, the word the NIV version, which we read this morning, translates as sinful desires. The Greek word is epithumia, epithumia, which literally means over-desires, super-desires, over-desires, an all-controlling drive and longing. So God gave us over to the things we desired the most, so that we can play God, so that we can choose for ourselves. It's like he's saying, well, look, okay, if that's what you want, off you go. Let's see where this gets you. It's a bit like in the story of the prodigal son, where the son, the younger son comes to his father, asks for inheritance, he wants to go and live his life. He doesn't want to be controlled by his father. And the father agrees, he lets him go. And it's like the father gives him over to follow his own choices. He removes all the boundaries and lets him play out the desires of his heart with, with awful consequences. That's what God does with us. He removes all the boundaries and lets us play out the desires of our heart. Do you know, it's the worst thing that can happen to us is to get what our hearts over-desire, what our hearts want too much. It's the very worst thing that can happen to us, and yet it's the most just thing that God can do to give you over to your strongest desires, to give you over to the things you want the most. Okay? Is that what you want? Have it. Oscar Wilde said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. The phrase, follow your heart, has become a bit of a mantra in our world, and it sounds lovely, doesn't it? Follow your heart. It's the biggest curse 
for us. Follow your heart will become the biggest curse for you because it leads ultimately to destructive behavior. And as right at the end at verse 32, it says, not only, not only doing that behavior, not only reveling in that behavior, but approving of it and leading others into it too. Everything that is wrong with our world, everything that's wrong with our society comes back to this. The wrath of God is being revealed because man has suppressed the truth about God. And so it's God's judgment on the world at this present time, on mankind. Of course, there is a judgment coming, a future judgment coming. But God's judgment on the world at this present time is to give us over to the things that we want too much, to the destructive, idolatrous desires of our hearts And he allows us to walk through the door that we have chosen for ourselves. Now one thing, as we read through this passage, there's one thing which kind of stands out like a a beacon. It's glaring. And it's that one of the manifestations of all this is in sexual immorality. And Paul focuses in on homosexuality. Now I'm not going to be able to do this justice here. Because this topic of sexuality requires a lot more time than I can give to it now. But equally to ignore it would be like leaving a massive elephant in the room. So let me, let me just make a couple of points, but forgive me, I ask for your grace if, if this makes what is a very complex issue, and I'm not trying to pretend it's not, if it makes a complex issue too simplistic. We can be tempted to think that homosexuality is just a modern day issue, that it's just something we've, we've, we're coming up against now. It's not. Phil Moore writes this. He says, writing to Rome to say that homosexuality was sinful was like writing to France to forbid the use of garlic in cooking. Gay relationships were simply part and parcel of Roman life. They had practically become a national institution. Does that sound familiar to anyone? To say that homosexual sex, that that homosexuality is sinful, is not a very popular statement in our day. And it wasn't then either, but he is saying it. Paul is saying it. In spite of certain people's recent attempts to reinterpret the meaning, the whole meaning of the Bible, to basically get the wrath of God out of the picture, to make passages like this more palatable to a modern Western audience, even though it wasn't written to a modern Western audience, Paul is very clearly saying that. He's very clearly saying that homosexual sex, homosexuality is sinful in God's eyes, not same sex attraction. That's not what he's talking about here. Not same-sex attraction. Many people experience same-sex attraction. In fact, statistically, many people here today will have experienced or do experience same-sex attraction. That's not what he's talking about. That's not sinful. It's when you start to act on it that it becomes sinful in God's eyes. There's a lot of debate around whether homosexuality is a matter of nature or nurture or both. Paul is saying, actually, it's neither. It's simply the natural expression of a culture that rejects God. And it feels right to somebody who is homosexual. Homosexuality feels absolutely right because we live in a culture that has suppressed God's truth and has been given to the over-desires of our hearts. But to put this in, in its proper context, homosexuality is not the worst thing in the world. It's not the worst sin. All sexual immorality is sinful, whether that's heterosexual or homosexual. Any sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is what the Bible calls sexual immorality. All of that is sinful. It's not that homosexuality is any worse than this or worse than that or worse than that. 
And then in verses 29 to 31, Paul lists a whole load of other things that are a part of this revealing of God's wrath. Things like envy and slander and gossip and disobeying parents. You know, churches can get in a bit of a mess over this. This issue of homosexuality. So some may take a very liberal approach of downplaying or even denying the clear teaching of Scripture in order to appear more relevant to the culture and to be more welcoming and loving to, to gay people. On the other extreme, some churches take the teaching of Scripture about homosexuality very seriously indeed, but also in a very self-righteous way, as if it's the worst thing in the world, and that they don't seek to love or welcome gay people at all. Let me quote Phil Moore on this, what he says. He says, Paul also makes this his focus because homophobia is sinful too. Homophobia is sinful too. If you find yourself nodding at Paul's teaching and reveling in his attack on homosexuality, then he also chose to highlight this as an issue because of you. He is laying a trap, which he springs in chapter 2, verse 1, on the moralists who are guilty of first century homophobia. Because it says, you therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. He knew that Jewish Christians were quoting Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13 to push gay people away as detestable. Therefore, he lists it alongside envy and lying and hatred and gossip to demonstrate that it is simply one of many expressions of human rebellion. Was Nero worse in his homosexuality than when he raped a vestal virgin, or when he committed incest with his mother, or kicked his pregnant wife to death during an argument? Of course not. Paul focuses on homosexuality because it roots out moralizers, so he can deal with them at the beginning of chapter 2. There, no, there is no room or place in the church for self-righteous pride and self-righteous judgment. There's no place for it. Gay people have to be able to come in here and find the love of Jesus Christ. I recently read a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by someone called Rosaria Butterfield. In fact, I think her full name is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Fantastic name. And Rosaria Butterfield was a radically left-wing, lesbian, American university lecturer and gay rights activist. And the stories of how she became a Christian is an amazing story hence the title, Un Unlikely Convert. And the catalyst, one of the key catalysts for her becoming a Christian was that over the course of about two years, she met regularly for dinner with this Presbyterian pastor and his wife um, after responding to correspondence that's, and that sort of thing. Over two years, they met regularly for dinner. And the thing that she said that really struck me was that she said that over all that time, over all the time they were meeting, she knew that this Christian couple did not approve of her lifestyle as a lesbian. She knew they didn't approve of that lifestyle, but she felt utterly loved. And she felt utterly accepted by them, just as she was. With no, with no pressure on, you've got to come to church, you've got to change, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. She felt utterly loved and accepted by them as she was. Church, that's where we've got to be on this issue. Not compromising on truth. You know, never, ever taking this and and corrupting it to say what it doesn't actually say. There is truth in here. And we must never ever downplay what this says, the truth of the word of God. We must never compromise on truth, but we must show love and acceptance, the love and acceptance of Jesus Christ, instead of any self-righteousness, any, any sense of judgment. And if there is any of that in your heart, root it out. 
Ask God to root it out. If there's any sense of self-righteous judgment, do you know, if, if you have that in your heart, then in that story of the, the prodigal son, you are the older brother. And it doesn't end all that well for him. Self-righteousness, judgment, there's no place for it in the church. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves everyone. And he desires to save everybody. He desires to save you, whether you are heterosexual or homosexual or even homophobic. He loves you. There's obviously lots more that could be said on that whole issue, but that's going to have to be for another time. But the wrath of God is being revealed because mankind has suppressed the truth about God, has exchanged the truth of God for the lie of idolatry, and we see the outworking of all of that in the brokenness of our world. And that leaves that one final question, then what do we do about it? What can we do about it? And the answer is, of course, nothing. We ourselves can do nothing but thankfully, God has done something. Again, it takes us back to that Romans 3.21, but now. We are in a mess, but now. God has showed up. The righteousness of God is being revealed. God has done something. The wrath of God is not an expression of God's unkindness. If he didn't care, if he didn't care about us, he wouldn't do anything. He would just leave us to it. He'd leave us to our depravity and to our destruction. But he has done something. We know he did do something. He did something which changed the course of human history when he inserted himself, God inserted himself into human history. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus Christ willingly, he chose this. He willingly, on that cross, took upon himself the wrath that we deserve from God. The wrath of God was poured out on him instead of on you. If, you are, if you're somebody who, who very easily slips into kind of fear and condemnation when you hear about things like this, you've got to know this, that because of what Jesus has done, we really truly can say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. He's taken it all. So this passage is not only a warning of what happens when people walk away from God, the consequences of that, but it's also an offer. There's an offer to come home. It speaks of a reversal that's gone on, a massive, great reversal that has gone on because of what Jesus has done, the reversal of the curse of sin that is upon this world. Because as he became a curse for us on that cross, instead of wrath, you can now receive righteousness. Instead of a darkened mind, you can now have your mind renewed, says in Romans 12. Instead of being given over to the sinful desires of your heart and to destruction, you can now be given over to the truth. You can now be given over to the, to the wonderful desires of God's heart for you and to the glorious inheritance of eternal life with Jesus. Christians, the good news is that you no longer have to fear God's wrath. You no longer have to fear God's judgment because you have received his righteousness. So how do you respond to that? Well, the only response is surely to make him number one in your heart, to put him at the top, to make sure you have no other gods before him. That is the right response. Know what the over-desires of your heart are. Know what are those things that come in and threaten to take God's place in your heart, in your life, and put them in their proper place, put them in their rightful place as you worship him. That is the only appropriate response to the righteousness that you have received from Christ. If you're not a Christian, this offer is for you. The offer is there for you. 
In the words of uh, Tim Keller, in the beauty of the world, we are to see God's existence. In the brokenness of the world, we are to see God's justice. And as we do, we run back to the place where we see God's mercy, the cross. It's an invitation to the cross of Christ. The offer is for you. Everyone has sinned. Everyone, every human being has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But a way back has been made, a way home, a way to God has been made that is open to everybody including you, even you. The cross of Christ. Come to the cross of Christ. The offer is there. And finally, for all of us, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, the only way to stop your heart worshipping the wrong things is to worship the right thing. And all other passions will be put in their rightful place as we fix our eyes on him and as we revel in the beauty and the love and the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.